We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Away we go, episode 35 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, April 8th, 2021, day one of the 2021 Masters, the best event in golf, the most meaningful event in golf. Yes, there are four majors. The PGA Tour has even tried to dress up the Players' Championship as the fifth major, but there ain't no major as major as the Masters. Of course, It is a Masters that will not include Tiger Woods. How about the latest on Tiger, by the way? So the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office on Wednesday saying that Tiger Woods' February crash was caused by excessive speed. Yeah, no kidding. His SUV was traveling from 84 to 87 miles per hour on a downhill stretch of road outside LA that had a speed limit of 45 miles per hour. The SUV was going 75 miles per hour when it hit a tree, according to the sheriff, Alex Villanueva. Uh, No traffic citations were issued. Authorities said there was no evidence of impairment or of distracted driving. So the authorities did not have probable cause to get warrants. Investigators, however, did search the SUV's data recorder, known as a black box. Villanueva blamed the crash solely on excessive speed and Tiger's loss of control behind the wheel. It is believed Tiger inadvertently hit the accelerator instead of the brake pedal. This whole investigation into this Tiger crash really has been something else. We haven't spent a lot of time on this. You know, this is a DC sports podcast, but occasionally we dip our toes into the waters of some national sports topics on the Al Galdi podcast. And this Tiger investigation really is something else. Like, 
Uh, nothing to see here. Yeah, he was going 87 miles per hour in an area that had a speed limit of 45 miles per hour. He, for some reason, hit the accelerator when he should have hit the brake pedal. Okay, move on. Like, really? Really? I mean, this is crazy to me. Why was he going so fast? Why did he hit the accelerator instead of the brake pedal? How about this? Detectives did not seek search warrants for Tiger's blood samples, which could have been screened for drugs or alcohol or his cell phone. Sheriff's officials said that Tiger told deputies that he had not ingested medication or alcohol before the crash. Okay, good enough for me. He says he was clean. He says he was sober. All right, nothing to see here. Move on. I mean, this, this really is incredible. The, the, uh, the detective work being done into this Tiger crash. I mean, look, I'm a Tiger fan. I hope he recovers. I hope he plays again. I hope he wins another five majors. But fair is fair, okay? The guy crashed. He could have killed himself. He could have killed somebody else. And you're not going to look into what the heck happened? I mean, this thing of, well, he said he wasn't impaired, so that's good enough for us. Really? Like, what is going on here? That is that is just hysterical to me. I hope every one of you listening right now gets treated as well by the popo as Tiger has gotten treated by the L.A. County popo in this car crash situation. Anyway, hello. Nice to have you with us. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gus Ferrat on Wednesday's podcast. Got a lot of good feedback to that. If you missed the chat, of course, you can download the episode. It is episode 34. Gus was terrific. Excellent insight into Ryan Fitzpatrick, for whom Gus has served as a mentor. Also, Gus opened up a lot about his time as Washington quarterback, including the famous controversy, Gus versus Heath Schuler. I have for you on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, another special guest, Washington football team insider, Rhiannon Walker, of the Athletic DC. We'll talk, of course, about the Washington football team's offseason, including what's going on at quarterback. And Rhiannon will address the sexual harassment scandal as we continue to await the findings in the Beth Wilkinson investigation. Which will come first? True findings into what happened regarding the Tiger Woods crash or the findings in the Beth Wilkinson investigation? But keep this in mind with Rhiannon Walker. Uh, she doesn't just cover the team. She also was a victim in the sexual harassment scandal. She was harassed by Alex Santos during his time as Washington's director of pro personnel. Some real winners Washington employed over the years in its front office. So Rhiannon has a very unique and special perspective on all this stuff. She will address her feelings on Dan Snyder having just been empowered like never before, even with this investigation in theory still going on. And Rhiannon also will address where we're at with this Beth Wilkinson investigation. So I promise you this is a conversation you don't want to miss. Also regarding the Washington football team, new intel coming out on Wednesday afternoon regarding Washington's interest in Sam Darnold. What does that tell us about what's been going on at quarterback? I'll get into that. Jeremy Sprinkle has signed with the Cowboys. Uh, Dallas, you can have him. I'll explore exactly what is going on at Washington's tight end position this offseason in just a bit. It was a bad Wednesday for the Nationals as they lost both games in the doubleheader against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. Got a lot to say about all that went down. I'll do that shortly. The details on the Mark Turgeon extension are in. What do they tell us about how much of a commitment this is to him from Maryland? I'll discuss that. I'll talk Wizards. They won on Wednesday night. I'll talk Orioles. They won on Wednesday night. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast 
at yahoo.com. So on Wednesday's podcast, we discussed the Washington football team's new fan ambassador network. Fan, F-A-N, the Washington football team fan, F-A-N, all caps, fan ambassador network, a diverse group of Washington football fans who will serve as the voice of the fan base and provide perspective to the organization as it prepares for the 2021 season and throughout the rebrand process. And you can join the Washington football team fan ambassador network by simply submitting an application or nominating someone else to be a part of the fan ambassador network. And I said, you know, we should all come together as an Al Galdi podcast community and nominate each other so we can all be Washington football team fans, F-A-N, all caps. Anyway, got this email from Thomas Murphy. Thomas wrote me, he said, okay, Al, got you signed up. Wow. As a fan ambassador, if I knew how to use the bots, I would have. Maybe I should ask Mr. Snyder for some help on that. That's a good idea, Thomas. Make usage of the bots and the bots can do some good for us. You know, we know the bots love diversity. Okay. They made that crystal clear a few weeks back. And actually speaking of diversity, the Washington football team with another instance of diversity coming out on Wednesday, the hiring of 26 year old Natalia Durantes as coordinator of football programs, first Latina in NFL history to serve such a role. This is news that is actually broken by Rhiannon Walker. Uh, I'll ask Rhiannon about that in our chat coming up in just a little bit. But yeah, Washington continues to diversify, right? Jason Wright, first black team president in NFL history. Julie Donaldson, first regular in the booth female radio broadcaster for a team in NFL history. Jennifer King, first full-time black female assistant coach in NFL history. It's been one groundbreaking hiring after another. Didn't even mention the hiring of Martin Mayhew, right? A black general manager. Now the hiring of Natalia Durantes, coordinator of football programs, first Latina in NFL history to serve such a role. So yeah, the bots at the very least should be pleased by all this, right? Diversity. I see you. Remember all those, all those phony Twitter people saying that over and over again, the exact same way. Diversity. I see you. Uh, yeah. So diversity. We see you. Washington football team, uh, with another historical hiring becoming official there, uh, on Wednesday. Of course, with these hirings, it's not just about what these people look like. It's also about these people being very good at what they do, right? That at the end of the day, is what matters most. But yes, the bots. We miss the bots. We want to make usage of the bots as often as we can uh, on this podcast. By the way, speaking of this podcast, I got an email on Wednesday from Carlos from podstatus.com. I had not heard of that before until I got this email. Anyway, Carlos from podstatus.com wrote me and said the following. Hello, how's it going? Hope all is well. I have some cool information that might interest you. Your podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, has good performance in Apple podcast rankings, parentheses, last 30 days. And the email goes on to give various ratings for this podcast in the football category in various countries. You've heard me talk about where this podcast has been ranking in the Apple Podcast U.S. football category. By the way, uh, up 13 spots as of last check early this morning to number 32 in the country. Thank you very much. But how about this per Carlos from podstatus.com? The Al Galdi podcast in the football category in Russia is number 23. The Al Galdi podcast in the football category in Switzerland is number 18. The Al Galdi podcast in the football category in Japan is number 15. The Al Galdi podcast in the football category in the Philippines is number seven. 
and the Al Galdi podcast in the football category in the Netherlands is number four. How about that? The Dutch, them Dutch, stepping up to the plate and internationally bringing it strong. So to all of my friends in the Netherlands, to all of Dutch nation listening to this right now, I salute you from overseas and I thank you for your support of this podcast. Hey, if they can be downloading this bad boy and subscribing and rating and reviewing this bad boy in the Netherlands, then at the very least, you can do your job and get on board with this thing here in the United States. All right, enough of that. On to sports. So yes, the joy that was on display at Nationals Park on Tuesday, replaced by sadness on Wednesday. The Nats off that glorious season opening 6-5 walk-off win over the Atlanta Braves at Nats Park on Tuesday get swept in a doubleheader against the Braves at Nats Park on Wednesday. A 7-6 loss followed by a 2-0 loss. Now look, everything right now with the Nats has to be viewed through the prism of the team is missing a bunch of guys. Nine players are out right now due to COVID-19 protocols. Josh Bell, Kyle Schwarber, Josh Harrison, Jan Gomes, Alex Avila, Jordy Mercer, Patrick Corbin, John Lester, and Brad Hand. That's a big deal, clearly. You compound that with the fact that the Nats are beginning their 2021 season with this nine-game gauntlet. Three games against the three-time defending National League East champion Braves. Three games at the reigning defending World Series champion Los Angeles Dodgers. Then three games at the St. Louis Cardinals. But still, especially off that walk-off win on Tuesday, the Nats were eyeing winning at least two of the three games against the Braves and coming out of this season opening series, feeling pretty good about things, right? I mean, at this point, over these first nine games, you're just trying to tread water. You're just trying to keep your head above water. You're just trying to go, say, four and five, you know, or better. And if you can do that, if you can make hay to that extent, you get back your horses, and then you can really focus on starting to pile up some victories. The Nats were in position in both games on Wednesday afternoon to get at least a win, and look at this series as, hey, we won two out of three against the Braves to begin this season, despite being without nine players due to these COVID-19 protocols. But the Nats were unable to seal the deal in either game Wednesday afternoon. And that's things. That's things. Because like I said, you could have had two out of three. You end up taking just a one out of three. And that's a lost opportunity for the Nationals, even when you consider the absences. The 7-6 loss early on Wednesday afternoon, that score five runs in two innings off the Braves starting pitcher Max Freed, but can't overcome Eric Fetty getting shellacked. The 2-0 loss later on Wednesday afternoon, the Nats waste an excellent start from Steven Strasburg, get totally shut down by Brave starter Uaskar Inoa and two relievers, Luke Jackson and Sean Newcomb, in what had been a planned bullpen game for the Braves. So you're starting Strasburg against a Braves attack that's going to be a bullpen attack, and you end up losing that game, even though Strasburg held up his end of the bargain. Strasburg was awesome on Wednesday afternoon in game two of the doubleheader, and the Nats still are unable to come through with the win. So let's just take these games sequentially. So game one of the doubleheader, the 7-6 loss on Wednesday afternoon, you start with Eric Fetty, who is just awful, okay? The Nats get to Max Freed, and Eric Fetty gives it right back. He ultimately gets rocked to the tune of six runs, five earned in one and two-thirds innings on six hits, three walks, two of which were intentional walks of Freddie Freeman versus one strikeout. Fetty threw just 27 of his 45 pitches for strikes. 
The Eric Fetty story has been told by me many times. This is a guy who the Nats took with the number 18 overall pick in the 2014 draft. He's been mediocre to poor over his four major league seasons, 2017 through 2020. But you can say in his defense, he has been jerked around a bunch between starter and reliever. And actually, Fetty over the previous two years, 2019 and 2020, wasn't that bad. He had an ERA plus at 100, which is league average. So his ERA, when adjusted for ballpark and league, actually was right at league average, which isn't terrible. Like if you're a league average pitcher, you're actually of definite service to your team. Well, Eric Fetty was anything but average uh, on Wednesday afternoon. He was awful. Top of the first gives up a run on a leadoff double by Ronald Acuna Jr., a one-out intentional walk of Freddie Freeman, a one-out full count seven-pitch walk of Marcelo Zuna, and then a two-out run-scoring pass ball by Jonathan Lucroy. That's why Fetty had six runs allowed, but only five were earned. Then came the top of the second, also known as betting practice of Eric Fetty. Fetty in the top of the second gave up five runs, recorded just two outs. He gave up four consecutive hits to begin the inning. A leadoff full count single by Austin Riley. A double by Ender Inciarte. An RBI single by the Braves starting pitcher, Max Freed. And then a first pitch RBI single by Ronald Acuna Jr., then another run scored on an RBI ground out by Ozzy Albies. Fetty then issued a one-out intentional walk of Freeman, then gave up a two-out, two-run double to Travis Darno on a smash that went off the left center field wall, and then Fetty mercifully got pulled. It was a killer again because you got to free. The Nats are leading 4-1 after one, and then give it all right back with the Braves putting up the five spot in the top of the second and Fetty was the reason. Look, if the Nationals had more starting pitching depth, Eric Fetty wouldn't still be an option. Eric Fetty wouldn't be being turned to to start game two of this season. And I get it, right? The Nats are desperate. They're minus Patrick Corbin, minus John Lester. But still, it is an indictment of the Nationals' lack of starting pitching depth that Eric Fetty continues to get these opportunities. It is an indictment of the Nationals' lack of starting pitching depth that we've been doing this thing for years now of Eric Fetty, Joe Ross, Austin Voth, three-way competition for the number five spot. You know, Voth and Fetty inevitably are your top two starting pitchers to start when any member of your season opening five-man rotation can't post. It's like, it's time to explore other options. But the problem is the Nats don't have these other options. They've not done a very good job of drafting and developing starting pitchers for years now. The Nats are so desperate for these last two first-round picks, Jackson Rutledge and Cade Cavalli, to ultimately work out as quality starting pitchers for the Nationals at the Major League level. And this Fetty stuff is also why that recent news of Mason Denneberg, the Nats' 2018 first-round pick undergoing Tommy John surgery, was particularly damaging. I mean, if you're a Nats fan, you were eyeing Denneberg as someone who, over the next you know few years, could become a staple for you at the major league level. Nats took Denneberg out of a Florida high school, so it was going to take a little longer for him to develop. But here you have now Mason Denneberg, again, a 2018 first round pick. He undergoes shoulder surgery in the fall of 2019. And we learned this past Sunday that Denneberg recently underwent Tommy John surgery. So who knows when Mason Denneberg might be good to go, if he's ever truly good to go for the Nats at the major league level. So really can't emphasize that enough, big picture, how much the Nats need their last two first round picks, Jackson Rutledge 2019, Cade Cavalli 2020, to pan out. And what happened with Fetty in game one of the doubleheader sweep to the Braves on Wednesday afternoon, I thought was another reminder of this. Now, 
There were bright spots for the Nats in this game one loss. The Nats bullpen was terrific. Five Nats relievers combined to allow one run in five and a third innings on nine strikeouts versus three hits and no walks. And the first four relievers who the Nats utilized, Kyle McGowan, Sam Clay, Kyle Finnegan, and Luis Avilan, they combined for four and a third scoreless innings with seven strikeouts versus one hit and no walks. Bullpen was terrific in game one. Uh, how about Clay making his major league debut, strikes out Freddie Freeman and Marcelo Zuna in what ends up being a scoreless fourth. Clay does this despite each guy talking about Freeman and Ozuna having gotten ahead in the count 3-0. So Clay is in trouble. 3-0, Freeman is ahead of Clay. 3-0, Ozuna is ahead of Clay. And Clay ends up striking out both guys. Outstanding job by Sam Clay in that spot. And what was, again, his major league debut. And then the next inning, Finnegan strikes out all three batters he faces in a perfect fifth inning. Travis Darno down. Dansby Swanson, down. Austin Riley, down. So as bad as Fetty was, McGowan, Clay, Finnegan, and Avilan were that good. The lone Nats reliever who got got was Wander Suero. He gave up a run in the top of the seventh on back-to-back singles to begin the inning, and then a run-scoring wild pitch. He then actually threw another wild pitch. But even with that, five relievers combining to allow one run in five and a third innings with nine strikeouts against the Braves. Like, that's an outstanding job by that Nats bullpen in game one of the doubleheader. And you do have to credit the lineup. Again, the Nats got to Max Freed. And whereas it was, in so many ways, the bottom half of the Nats lineup that came through in the game one win in the series, right? Juan Soto did have the walk-off hit, but it was the likes of Hernan Perez and Andrew Stevenson and Jonathan Lucroy who had big hits throughout that game on Tuesday. In Wednesday's game, one of the doubleheader, it was the Nats' top five batters who did the damage. Victor Robles, leadoff single in a Nationals four-run first and got hit by a pitch in the bottom of the sixth. Trey Turner, two hits, a two-run homer off Freed on a missile to left field in the Nats' four-run first. And Turner had a one-out double in the Nats' one-run second despite having been down in the count at 1.02. Juan Soto drew three walks in game one of the doubleheader. A six-pitch full-count walk in the Nats' four-run first. A two-out five-pitch walk in the bottom of the fourth. A leadoff six-pitch full-count walk in the Nats' one-run seventh. Ryan Zimmerman was good in game one of the doubleheader. Two hits, a double in that Nationals' four-run first. A two-out single in the Nats' one-run second. And Starling Castro in game one of the doubleheader. Three hits. Three RBI, an RBI bloop single to center field in the Nats' four-run first. A two-out first pitch opposite field RBI single to right center in the Nats' one-run second. And a one-out first pitch RBI double down the left field line in the bottom of the seventh to draw the Nats within one at 7-6. So no complaints about the Nats' bats. No complaints, really, about the Nats' bullpen. Fetty was the problem, and the Nationals lose game one of that doubleheader, 7-6. Then comes game two, the 2 nothing loss, and you get basically everything you could have reasonably asked for from Steven Strasburg, right? He makes just the two starts in 2020 due to carpal tunnel neuritis. He dealt with the left calf issue during spring training, and he looked wonderful in the game two on Wednesday. Six scoreless innings, eight strikeouts versus one hit, a single, and two walks. Did throw just 85 pitches. You have to wonder if later in the season, in a spot like this, Davey Martinez pushes Strasburg beyond the sixth inning. I tend to think that Davey does. I mean, just 85 pitches, right? He could have got another inning, especially in a game, right? That's just a seven-inning game. These are two doubleheaders in this COVID-19 pandemic world. And so all you need to do is eat up seven innings. Strasburg was more than capable of doing that. But early in the season, his first start of the season, 
barely pitched last season. I get why Davey didn't let Strasburg go beyond the six innings and the 85 pitches. But Strasburg was really good. Oh, by the way, Strasburg had the Nats lone extra base hit in game two of the doubleheader. A one-out full count double in the bottom of the third. But just so much to like about Strasburg's outing. How about what he did in the top of the third? He began the inning with back-to-back strikeouts to Christian Pache and the Braves starting pitcher, Uwaskari Noah. Then actually issued back-to-back two-out walks of Ronald Acuna Jr. and Ozzie Albies on a total of nine pitches. So that wasn't good. You're in a jam. You got the notorious Nats killer Freddie Freeman coming up to bat. And what happens? Strasburg induces a flyout to end the threat. So even when things got a little dicey, Strasburg was able to escape unscathed. He was outstanding. The problem was the Nats bullpen and one guy, and that was Tanner Rainey. He was the lone Nats reliever utilized in the 2 nothing loss on Wednesday afternoon. And Rainey, who is so promising, who was so good in 2020, big-time strikeout pitcher, you know, swing and missed up. Rainey gives up two runs in the top of the seventh to break a scoreless tie. Now, look, if your offense is doing its job, giving up a couple of runs in the top of the seventh should not doom you. But in this game, it obviously did. Rainey gave up a two-out single to Dansby Swanson and then gave up the big blow. A two-out, full count, pinch two-run homer by Pablo Sandoval to center field, despite him having been down in the count at one point. One-two. The veteran, the Kung Fu Panda, who, by the way, looks like he has done nothing but eat Panda Express. Pablo Sandoval smashing that pitch off Tanner Rainey, depositing it to dead center, and Rainey gives up the two-run homer, and that ends up being enough for the Braves to pull out the win. Oh, by the way, after giving up the bomb, Rainey then issued a two-out full-count walk of Christian Pache, despite him having been down in the count at one point. One, two. So you give up the homer to Sandoval, who was down at 1.12. Then you walk Pache, despite him having been down in the count at 1.12. Rainey dealt with a muscle strain near his right collarbone during spring training. Didn't make his debut in exhibition play until March 21st. He's not himself. He certainly did not look like himself in this game two of the doubleheader on Wednesday. And this is how a problem becomes even more compounded because you're without Brad Hand, who is poised to be your best reliever this season. And now the guy who is set to be, you know, I think your second best reliever, like we got to see the games play out, but Rainey isn't himself. Dealt with the muscle strain near the right collarbone, is still pretty clearly working himself back into top form. So it was disappointing to see Rainey struggle as he ended up struggling. But again, it shouldn't have been this razor-thin margin of error. The offense did nothing in game two of the doubleheader. Just two hits, just three walks, shut down by a Braves quote-unquote starter, Uaskar Inoa, who wasn't supposed to last that long and instead ends up going five scoreless innings with five strikeouts in a planned bullpen game for the Braves. But basically, nobody did anything offensively in game two. Trey Turner, 0 for 3. Starling Castro, 0 for 3. Hernan Perez, 0 for 3 with three strikeouts. Andrew Stevenson, 0 for 3 with two strikeouts. Tress Barrera was the Nats starting catcher in game two of the doubleheader on Wednesday afternoon to give you a sense of where the Nats are at right now from a depth standpoint. Tress Barrera, he goes 0 for 2 with a strikeout. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman came off the bench. He struck out on three pitches as a pinch hitter to end the game. It was that kind of a game for the Nationals offensively. And it was the first game of the first three games anyway, 
where the depleted state of the Nats really stood out. Like, it kind of felt like in game two of the doubleheader, what ends up being a third game in about a 25-hour period for the Nats, that that's where the lack of depth, that's where all these COVID-19-induced absences caught up to the Nationals. You know, Tres Barrera is your starting catcher. Hernan Perez was your starting first baseman. It's not supposed to be that way, okay? And yet it was to say nothing of who you were facing the Atlanta Braves. That could be one thing if this was a three-game series against the Colorado Rockies. You're facing, again, the three-time defending reigning National League East champion Braves. And this is what you're going with, Tres Pereira, Hernan Perez. But this is a spot you're in because you're missing the nine players due to COVID-19 protocols. A bright spot for the Nats offensively in game two of the doubleheader was Victor Robles. Uh, Robles drew two more walks, also had a stolen base, so Robles for the series against the Braves, starting center fielder in each game, number one batter in each game, reaches base in seven of his 12 plate appearances, finishes with three hits, four walks, and a hit by pitch. It is early, clearly, but Victor Robles off having had an excellent exhibition season, so far looking the part of a leadoff batter this regular season in terms of of getting on base. Uh, your official attendance for the doubleheader was a single admission doubleheader. You went from one game to the next. 4,927. You were at 4,801 for that season opening 6-5 win on Tuesday. There still could be, should be more fans. We know many people want more fans, including Max Scherzer, who was very vocal about this after the win on Tuesday. But good to see over these last few days, nearly 5,000 fans per game there at Nats Park, getting fans back in the ballpark. You know, something is better than nothing, okay? You could be like the Capitals and Wizards and have it zero fans these days. Nationals at least have been in that 4,800, 4,900 territory over three games at home to begin the season. So the Nats now off on Thursday and then comes a three-game series at the Dodgers this weekend. Game one is Friday afternoon beginning at 410. Joe Ross will be the national starter for game one. And then after that, we do not know. Uh, there is a hope that some of these guys who were out could be back in come the weekend, but we don't know who, we don't know when. This is a state of things right now for the Nationals that it's kind of day by day in terms of who can clear protocols, who might be available to you. There's still a lot of mystery with these protocols in terms of how do you clear them? What is the timeline? What are the means by which a guy can get cleared and be back playing for the Nationals? You're dealing, remember, with not only MLB protocols, but the ultra-strict protocols of the D.C. Department of Health. Things are also complicated here because you're flying. You know, you got to fly cross-country now out to Los Angeles and fly to St. Louis. So that's going to impact some things in terms of everybody getting on a plane. Because remember, that's how a lot of this, we believe, spread. That the Nationals had a COVID-19 positive, didn't know about it until it was too late, until the team had flown on a chartered flight from Florida back to the D.C. area. But yeah, I mean, all things considered, could the series have gotten worse? Sure, you could have gotten swept. But you had a shot on Wednesday afternoon in each game to pull out a win, to win the series. And instead, the Nats end up getting swept by the Braves in the doubleheader. It's like the late, great Denny Green said many years ago. They are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. They are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. We turn our attention now to the Washington football team and within the storyline that has been what now for the Washington football team at quarterback has been the subplot of, well, what has Washington wanted to be next 
at quarterback. Who exactly has Washington wanted at quarterback throughout this offseason? We know what Washington has done, signed Ryan Fitzpatrick, but where did Fitzmagic truly rank in terms of the Washington wish list for quarterbacks going into this offseason? To that end, we had something very interesting that popped up on Wednesday afternoon. So, of course, it was on Monday that the New York Jets traded quarterback Sam Darnold to the Carolina Panthers for three draft picks, a six-round pick in 2021 and second and fourth round picks in 2022. Ian Rappaport, the NFL insider for NFL Network and NFL.com, he on Wednesday afternoon tweeted that the Washington football team and the San Francisco 49ers had taken hard looks at Sam Darnold prior to the start of free agency. Quote, Washington had conversations about it, and San Francisco acquired about what it would take to happen, though NYJ wasn't ready to make a move yet, end quote. So according to Rappaport in this tweet on Wednesday afternoon, Washington did have conversations about acquiring Sam Darnold. Now, were those conversations simply internal conversations? Were those conversations with the Jets? Rappaport in the tweet did make it a point to differentiate between Washington and San Francisco, uh, San Francisco, saying Washington had conversations about it, whereas San Francisco inquired about what it would take to happen. But Washington was in on Darnold to at least some extent. Now, this is not the first time that we've heard this, that Washington has had interest in Sam Darnold. Uh, NFL Network slash NFL.com all the way back on February 7th reported to expect Washington, quote, to weigh all QB options, including if Sam Darnold is made available, end quote. Uh, Connor Hughes, the Jets insider for the Athletic New York, he on March 16th, the day after the news broke that Washington had agreed on a contract with Fitzpatrick, tweeted that, quote, even after signing Ryan Fitzpatrick, I'm told Washington has not ruled out a trade for Sam Darnold, per sources, end quote. Now, this was quickly shot down by ESPN NFL insider, Diana Rossini, but still, the notion of Washington having interest in Darnold was still there. Now, on Monday, after the news of the trade broke, again, the Jets shipping Darnold to the Panthers, J.P. Finley, Washington football team insider for NBC Sports Washington, he tweeted that he had been told that Washington had not been very interested in Darnold. Quote, not looking for a reclamation project was a direct quote from somebody in Ashburn, end quote after the team signed Fitzpatrick. So if you're confused, uh, join the club. Was Washington in on Darnold? I think there's too much smoke here to not believe there wasn't at least some fire, right? Washington, at the very least, had conversations internally about Sam Darnold. Did the interest ever rise to a level of, boy, we want this guy, or boy, let's start negotiating with the Jets to get this guy? Maybe not, but Washington definitely considered Sam Darnold at some point this offseason. Now, as I've said, I don't blame Washington for doing something like this. I think if you're Washington and you're quarterback needy and you're in this perpetual search mode for your next franchise quarterback, you should exhaust all options. You should discuss everyone who's about to be available. You should make phone calls to see what it would take to get those guys who are realistically available. So I'm not angry that Washington had interest in Sam Darnold, but I do remain satisfied that Washington did not trade for Sam Darnold because I don't look at Sam Darnold and say to myself, oh, you got to get that guy. You know, that guy is 
purely been a victim of circumstance and he's done nothing wrong and there are so many things to like about him and so give up a two and a four and a six to get the guy like no uh I think that that was actually quite a nice price that the Jets ended up getting back from the Panthers for Darnold now the whole Jets Darnold scenario is still a big debacle from a Jets perspective given that the Jets remember gave up a ton to trade up to take Darnold with that number three overall pick in the 2018 NFL draft. But if you're just looking at the trade itself, Darnold off three consecutive wretched seasons to begin his career, off some injury problems too, that you get back a two, a four, and a six, uh, that's not nothing. Like, Jess actually did a pretty good job when viewing the transaction that way. Now, it is worth noting this too from that Rappaport tweet on Wednesday afternoon regarding him saying Washington had conversations about it and San Francisco inquired about what it would take to happen, though NYJ wasn't ready to make a move yet. Remember, the Jets did kind of slow walk trading Darnold this offseason. It was on February 22nd that multiple reports came out that the Jets could take a while when it came to what they wanted to do with Darnold. And then things kind of pivoted on March 3rd when the Jets general manager, Joe Douglas, in a video conference with reporters said that he was willing to listen to trade offers for Sam Darnold. So it's not like the Jets hit the ground running back in February of, okay, uh, we are open for business when it comes to Donald. It was more the Jets were kind of looking and seeing and waiting and thinking and trying to figure out where they stood with Donald. And Washington wasn't willing to wait around. And I don't blame Washington for not being willing to wait around. But it really is interesting, isn't it? All of the different quarterbacks who have come up this offseason regarding Washington having interest in them. We know Washington was in on Matthew Stafford. Obviously, didn't end up trading for him, right? He went from the Detroit Lions to the Los Angeles Rams, but Washington was in on Stafford. Ron Rivera has admitted to that, and the reporting has been clear. Washington, at the very least, offered a first-round pick and a third-round pick to the Lions for Stafford. And if you believe what this guy, Mike Fisher, a Dallas Cowboys insider for SI.com, reported, Washington also offered a starting player to the Lions for Stafford. We know, obviously, Washington was in on Fitzpatrick. Washington signed Fitzpatrick. But also this with Fitzpatrick. Remember, Albert Breer, NFL insider for the MMQB, he reported on March 16th, the day after the news broke that Washington was signing Fitzpatrick, that Washington, after it struck out on Stafford, uh, it was Fitzpatrick who became Washington's target. So according to Breer, Stafford was option one, Fitzpatrick was option two. Is that true? Is that the case? Maybe. I think it still could be, but Washington obviously at least flirted with the idea of Sam Darnold. Washington apparently also flirted with the idea of Jared Goff. He obviously got traded back to Detroit in the Stafford deal. NFL media on February 7th reported that Washington did call the Rams about Goff before he was traded to the Lions in that Rams package for Stafford. Marcus Mariota has come up regarding Washington. Michael Lombardi, for more on him in a moment, but Michael Lombardi, the former NFL executive, he now does a bunch of media things. He went on that sports betting network, uh, Vissen, on February 12th, said that the Washington football team was in on Marcus Mariota. Quote, I know there's one team in the NFC East, the Washington football team, that's extremely interested in Mariota, end quote. Now, just four days later, February 16th, uh, Lombardi, who's all over the place, went on the Pat McAfee show and said that he, Lombardi, wasn't sure if Washington was still interested in Mariota. So boy, that changed quickly. But anyway, Mariota's name has come up when it comes to the Washington football team. Uh, Mitchell Trubisky, as you may remember, came up regarding Washington. 
So Washington signs Fitzpatrick, or the news breaks of Washington signing Fitzpatrick on Monday night, March 15th. Earlier that Monday, March 15th, we got this from Ian Rappaport, him saying that Washington had some interest in Trubisky, okay? So yeah, the Trubisky thing was a thing for a little while. And it wasn't just Rappaport. This guy, Benjamin Albright, a host reporter and analyst for the Denver Broncos flagship radio station, KOA, he tweeted the following on that Monday, March 15th, quote, Washington looking to have a true quarterback competition. They'll add one more. Wouldn't be surprised if Trubisky gets second at there end quote. Uh, thankfully, that did not happen. The Buffalo Bills uh, signed Mitchell Trubisky on March 18th. But I mean, it's really been amazing, right? Washington has been a quarterback slut this offseason in terms of all these options. Whether you are talking about Stafford or Goff or Mariota or Trubisky or Darnold, Washington has been out there. Now, are, are all these reports true? Who the heck knows, right? So much stuff gets floated during the NFL offseason, especially in the months of February, March, April, as you're building toward the NFL draft. So I'm not saying you take all these tweets and reports as gospel, but I do think they're worth noting. I think they're impossible to ignore. And I think it is a sign that very much so Washington throughout this offseason has been looking to upgrade at quarterback, has been looking to add a veteran of consequence at quarterback. And I do remain steadfast in believing that Washington got a good one in terms of the best of the bunch, like the realistically available veteran quarterbacks this offseason, right? So I'm not talking about, you know, Deshaun Watson, and he he, he right now does, uh, belongs in a category uh, all to his own. But I'm not talking about a Watson or a Russell Wilson or, you know, Aaron Rodgers when he was having his issues with the Green Bay Packers. I'm talking about the realistically available quarterbacks available via free agency or trade. I think he got if not the best of the bunch, then a guy who's up there in Fitzpatrick. And statistically speaking, he is the best of the bunch. He has played at a very high level, Fitzpatrick has, over the last three seasons. You get him on a one-year, $10 million contract. I still feel like there is a lot to like about that from a Washington perspective. Now, look, if Darnold lights it up for the Panthers, if Darnold is completely rehabbed by Matt Rule and Joe Brady, then certainly there will be questions. And we will look back upon all this and say, man, if only Washington had traded for Sam Darnold in that offseason of 2021. But I get why you wouldn't be willing to give up the assets that the Panthers gave up to get Darnold. I get why, if you're Washington, you weren't willing to wait around on Sam Darnold. You know, all these veteran quarterbacks did come off the market rather quickly in terms of the free agents. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Andy Dalton, Tyrod Taylor, Mitchell Trubisky, like within just a few days, these guys were off the market. So there was a game of musical chairs that you had to be prepared for. And if you really did like Fitzpatrick above the rest of those guys, then you had to pounce. And Washington did pounce. Washington got Fitzpatrick, right? The night of day one of the NFL's legal tampering period, before free agency officially began, Washington got the deal with Ryan Fitzpatrick. Now, also emerging on Wednesday regarding our team, and who is our team interested in? And what is our team interested in doing? We did get news, or at least uh, scuttlebutt, regarding Washington moving up in the upcoming NFL draft. You know, it's funny. I spent a lot of time talking about this 
on Wednesday's podcast, right? Reacting to something that ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter tweeted on Tuesday morning that, quote, with teams locked into the first three overall picks, end quote, the Atlanta Falcons have received trade calls from multiple teams and are open to moving out of the number four spot per a source. And even though that very clearly was something planted by the Falcons, we had the conversation of, well, if you assume it's Trevor Lawrence 1, Zach Wilson 2, Mac Jones 3, is either Justin Fields or Trey Lance worthy of a massive trade-up in this upcoming draft? Is either Justin Fields or Trey Lance worthy of Washington trading away whatever it's going to take to move up from 19 to 4? And I said no. And I said that conceding there is, there are things to definitely like and be enticed by when it comes to Fields and Lance, but there's too much uncertainty and the trade-up would be too much, okay? You'd be giving up, what, three ones, multiple twos, a player or players of consequence? Like, no, I'm not doing that, especially with this recent track record of these trade-ups to take quarterbacks just totally falling on their faces, right? Talking about the bigger trade-ups, you know, things like the trade-ups to take Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen look quite good. But these trade-ups for Darnold and Trubisky and Goff and Carson Wentz look so bad now as we're years removed from them. So no, I would not advocate Washington giving up whatever it would take to move up to take either Fields or Lance. But our pal Michael Lombardi says, not so fast, my friend. So Michael Lombardi, in an installment of his podcast, the GM Shuffle that dropped on Wednesday, said something that every Washington football team fan should at least listen to, okay? It doesn't mean you have to swallow it and accept it, but you should at least hear it. Here it is. I think Washington is is going to be the next team to unload all their picks to try to get a quarterback. I think they love Lance. I think Washington, I don't think, I know Washington loves Lance. And so will they trade up to get Lance? That becomes remains to be seen. Ron Rivera, Marty Herney, uh, Martin Mayhew, I think the three of them, they've got to make a decision. Is it worth it to to forfeit some draft picks? Because they've got a really good team, and if they get this quarterback, they could really move up. It may just happen on the day of the draft as where, where Lance goes or what Atlanta does. Atlanta's going to try to get a king's ransom for the pick. All right, so Michael Lombardi right there, quote, I think Washington is going to be the next team to unload all their picks to try to get a quarterback. I think they love Lance. I don't think I know Washington loves Lance, end quote. Now, he then kind of slows his roll and says, well, they got to decide if they want to make a trade like that. Like, okay, I think every team has to decide if it wants to make a trade like that. But the takeaway there is that Washington really likes Lance. I don't really consider Lombardi to be like a an NFL reported to where when he says uh, Washington could be making a trade like this, they say, oh my gosh, it's going to happen. You know, like if Schefter said that, if, if Rappaport said that, it'd be a little different. Lombardi is purely speculating when he talks about the trade. But the takeaway there is Lombardi saying that Washington really does like Trey Lance. If you really like him and you really believe in him and the Atlanta Falcons are shopping that number four overall pick, then yeah, uh, trading up does start to become more realistic. The problem is, again, the price you're going to have to pay to go from 19 to 4, the uncertainty that's undeniable with any quarterback, really, when you take him in the first round, but especially with a guy like Trey Lance, right, who played really just one true season at North Dakota State, which is an FCS school. Now, I've said this with Trey Lance, and I still feel this way. I think he's a very enticing prospect. Like, I look at Trey Lance and I said to myself, I think this guy potentially can be a great quarterback. I think there is a wide range of what he'll end up being. You know, I think he's one of these high variance prospects where he could be awful. 
And then he could also kill it. 6'4", 226, can run like crazy, has a cannon arm, put up some monster numbers in his one true season at North Dakota State, what was his redshirt freshman season in 2019, but he's only played the one season. There's a real lack of experience. Um, look, if you think a guy can do it, having him here playing behind Ryan Fitzpatrick for a season isn't the worst idea in the world. But what are you giving up to have to get Trey Lance? And if it doesn't work out, then what? You've given up three ones, you know, multiple day two picks, maybe a player or players of consequence to get a guy who doesn't work out. You set your franchise back for years if you make a trade like that if and it doesn't work out. Now, if it hits, then you're golden, okay? There is no price that's too high to pay for a franchise quarterback. But the guy has got to be a franchise quarterback. And in a trade-up situation, too, it's not just that the guy can be, like, pretty good, you know, or middle-of-the-pack good. Because the Rams had that with Goff, didn't want to be in business with him anymore. The Eagles, you could argue, still had that with Wentz, didn't want to be in business with him anymore. Like, when you trade up to take a guy and you give up multiple ones to get the guy, the guy just can't be a guy. He has to be the guy, and he has to be the guy for years to come, and he has to be, say, a top eight, top ten guy. Otherwise, you've overpaid. Franchise quarterback doesn't mean eh, a guy who's uh, kind of so-so and, you know, you just kind of have some fun with him for a few years. Like, no, franchise quarterback is he is consistently a top 10, I would say, at worst, top 12 guy for you, okay? And you believe in him and he's the face of your franchise and you ride him for at least five, six years, okay? At least. That, that's like a minimum standard. That's a minimum threshold. It's got to be not just a hit, but at least a double, on something like this, if you're going to move up from 19 to 4 and give up what it's going to take to get the guy, and I just don't know how you have that certainty, even with someone as physically gifted as Trey Lance is. Here's another thing, too, we have to say. Uh, you know, Michael Lombardi, I mean, he's made a nice post-executive career for himself, but the guy says all kinds of things, and the guy has had kind of a weird relationship with the Washington football team. Michael Lombardi despised Bruce Allen to a point to where it became kind of uncomfortable. And it became kind of like, uh, why are you so obsessed with him? And I'm not here to defend Brucey, okay? We certainly have our fun on this podcast with old Brucifer. It means you're close. Yes, thank you, Brucey. Hello, how you doing? But Lombardi, it was a strange deal. And if you know your NFL media, you know this. Like, he would go off on Allen all the time. And he would come on local radio and just skewer Allen all the time, and he would take constant shots at Allen. It was kind of like, what is with this, like, incessant, borderline irrational hatred you have for the guy? Like, I get it. He's not very good at his job, but at at some point, it does become kind of like, you're not here in Washington. You're not a Washington fan. Like, why does this bother you so much? Like, what is this fixation you have with Bruce Allen? So I always found that to be kind of interesting and odd with Michael Lombardi. So anyway, he put that out there on Wednesday. And again, like I said, the takeaway is that at least according to Lombardi, Washington really likes Trey Lance. But if you go by all that's been reported over these last few weeks, Washington has liked to varying extents Sam Darnold and Marcus Mariota and perhaps Mitchell Trubisky. And it's like, okay, you can like a whole lot of people. I like a lot of people. But are you willing to give up what it would take to get those people? And I just can't realistically see, especially off some of what Ron has had to say so far this offseason, Washington doing what would be needed to be done to make the gargantuan leap from 19 to 4 to take Trey Lance 
three weeks from today in the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Our special guest, Washington football team insider Rhiannon Walker of The Athletic DC is coming up in just a bit. But first, I did want to address another free agent defection for Washington that broke on Wednesday. Jeremy Sprinkle, no longer with the WFT. Jeremy Sprinkle on Wednesday signing with the Dallas Cowboys. How about them Cowboys? Yes, how about them Cowboys signing Old Sprink? Uh, Jeremy Sprinkle is going into his age 27 season. Washington took Sprinkle in the fifth round of the 2017 draft out of Arkansas. Now, I will give Sprinkle credit for this. He lasted. He lasted for a long while, four seasons with Washington off having been a fifth round pick and off really not doing very much with Washington over the four years. Like, it would have been one thing if at one point Jeremy Sprinkle really stood out and you're like, well, you know what? He did do this back then, so I can understand why Washington keeps him around He incredibly just kept making the team and being on the roster season in and season out, even though he never really did that much. You know, Jeremy Sprinkle, I mean, he played a lot. He played in terms of like playing in games, I should say. He played in 59 of a possible 64 regular season games over four years with Washington, including in all 48 regular season games over the last three years, 2018 through 2020. But Sprinkle over his four seasons with Washington, just 34 catches for 301 yards, three touchdowns on 55 targets. That's it. 34 catches on 55 targets over four years. It's not like he was some exemplary blocker. You know, it's like you say, well, you know, he's not really a pass catching tight end. Like he could be okay, but he was nothing special in that department. Sprinkle would just kind of be out there, but didn't really do that much. You know, Sprinkle actually played a decent amount in the 2020 regular season for Washington. Uh, he played in all 16 games, played on 218 offensive snaps. But over those 218 offensive snaps, Sprinkle one reception on just three targets. Like he just was not a factor at all in the passing game. And Sprinkle also has had a problem at times with drops. Uh, Jeremy Sprinkle, like I go back to that 30-10 loss to the Los Angeles Rams at a rainy FedEx field week five of the 2020 season. Sprinkle had a drop uh, in that game on a second and seven pass by Kyle Allen in the second quarter. If you remember Washington's loss to the Chicago Bears at FedEx field on Monday Night Football in week three of the 2019 season, a 31-15 loss. So on the first offensive drive of the game for Washington, Case Keenum, boy, does that feel like a million years ago. Case Keenum had a pick six to our old pal, haha, Clinton Dix. And yes, I did say, haha. <laughs> yes, haha, as in not just haha, Clinton Dix's first name, but also haha, the joke was on us with Washington trading for haha in 2018 and him being a complete bust for Washington as that season went on. But anyway, haha, <laughs> yes, haha, had a pick six of Case Keenum early in that Washington loss to the Bears on Monday Night Football in 2019. The play right before the Keenum pick six to haha was a drop by Jeremy Sprinkle on a second and nine in completion. So Sprink, you know, he didn't do much. And when he got his opportunities, it felt like he did even less at times. So Jeremy Sprinkle now is gone. 
He's gone to the Cowboys. And basically, I wanted to use Jeremy Sprinkle's departure as a springboard into this. That is, what is the plan for Washington at tight end for 2021? We all would agree, right, that Washington needed to add to its tight end depth coming into this offseason. There is still time to do that. So I'm not saying, you know, oh my God, Washington's in trouble at tight end. And I'm certainly not saying, oh my God, you've lost Sprinkle. What now? at tight end. But understand, the tight ends of note on Washington's roster as we speak on this Thursday, Logan Thomas, Marcus Ball, Tameric Hemingway, and Thaddeus Moss. That's it. That's what you're looking at in terms of the four guys who were with the team last season and in theory could be back with the team this upcoming season. But after Logan Thomas, you have nothing in the way of proven depth, okay? And like was the case with Sprinkle last season, while some of these guys did play, like Ball did play somewhat, Hemingway did play somewhat, they were almost never targeted. Like it wasn't just that Logan Thomas ended up playing a bunch for Washington in the 2020 season, and he did. Logan Thomas ended up playing on 92.65% of Washington's offensive snaps in the regular season. It's that Logan Thomas was like the only tight end who was ever thrown to last year. In in a day and age in the NFL in which you are seeing the rise of 12 personnel, right? One running back, two tight ends. You know, the New England Patriots aggressively this offseason revamping themselves at tight end, acquiring Janu Smith in free agency. And the next day, acquiring Hunter Henry in free agency. The top two free agent tight ends signing with the same team this offseason and one of the great endorsements of 12 personnel you'll ever see, right? I mean, this could be shades of Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez without the murders uh, this upcoming season with the New England Patriots. Washington, can Washington even do 12 personnel right now? I mean, Logan Thomas and who? Just You're not really set up to do that. And Washington, I mean, as far as we can tell, wasn't really in on either John Smith or Hunter Henry. I mean, I guess it's possible Washington was, and it just wasn't reported, but there's been like nothing in the way of reporting on that, that Washington was in on either guy. So I'm not really sure what the thinking is. Now, look, Logan Thomas was a bargain basement free agent signing. He was a, a second wave of free agency signing, maybe even a third wave in free agency signing, a two-year $6.145 million contract that Washington signed Thomas to last offseason. It looks like a stroke of brilliance. Thomas was so good last season. 72 catches, 670 yards, and six touchdowns on 110 targets. Logan Thomas in 2020 became just the third tight end in Washington history to have a season with at least 70 catches, at least 650 receiving yards, and at least five receiving touchdowns. The only other Washington tight ends to ever have a season like that, Jordan Reed in 2015, Chris Cooley, in 2005. Logan Thomas in 2020 statistically was at the level of peak Reed and peak Cooley. That's saying something. I mean, that was a stunning season that Logan Thomas authored. I give the guy so much credit, but what if he gets hurt? Then what? Or just what if you want to go 12 personnel often this upcoming season and you want to throw with 12 personnel? If you know your NFL analytics, you know there has been an increased efficiency in throwing with 12 personnel in recent seasons because teams traditionally have expected run with 12 personnel, run with one running back, two tight ends. And yet if you throw out of that grouping, uh, you can actually find yourself having quite a bit of success, right? That I mean, offensive football in the NFL in so many ways comes down to throw when the defense thinks you're going to run, run when the defense thinks 
that you're going to throw. So I'm not sure what the plan is right now at tight end. I mentioned Thaddeus Moss. Perhaps Moss ends up being the guy who emerges in 2021. But remember what happened with Thaddeus Moss. So Washington signed Thaddeus Moss, the son of Randy Moss, as an undrafted free agent out of LSU, all right? And it was news that broke uh, not long after the conclusion of the 2020 draft. And it was news that was very well received. Thaddeus Moss had a very good final season at LSU. Uh, Thaddeus Moss in that great 2019 for the national champion Tigers, 47 catches for 570 yards and four touchdowns. He's known as a great blocking tight end. All right. He's obviously got the genetics, right? Having uh, been fathered by Randy Moss, but Thaddeus Moss also has a significant injury history. Uh, Thaddeus Moss, his physical at the 2020 combine revealed a Jones fracture in his right foot that required surgery. Thaddeus Moss missed the entire 2018 season of transferring from NC State due to a left foot fracture that required multiple surgeries. And Thaddeus Moss was actually waived by Washington last August 21st, but he then cleared waivers and was put on the reserve slash injured list. So, I mean, Washington maybe likes Thaddeus Moss, but didn't like him enough to not expose him to waivers last August. So that needs to be kept in mind. But, you know, maybe Thaddeus Moss ends up being a quality TE2 for Washington in 2021. But for now, there are many questions, and at least on the surface, not many answers for Washington at tight end beyond Logan Thomas. All right, well, very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Washington football team insider Rhiannon Walker of the Athletic DC. Rhiannon, great to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing well, Alice. Great to talk to you as well, too. You look good, sound good, everything's going good with you. Same to you, same to you. Very much appreciate you coming on here. So a lot has happened with the team since we last spoke. Uh, it has, though, been a quiet last few weeks. I'm just curious, do you think that Washington is essentially done in free agency, or could you see another significant move coming? I can see a significant move coming, and that's what they did last year is basically how everything worked out essentially is that um, they waited, they waited. I mean, if you think about some of their big free agent signings, Kevin Pierre-Louis, Ronald Darby, a lot of those guys were signed in April, so I mean, or late March. So I don't think that they're completely out of the woods. I think if there's some certain, I think if certain people were to suddenly randomly get cut, like we certainly see that happen, they would certainly jump on the situation. But as it is right now, one of the things that they talked about is that they just did their draft readings for the first time this week on Monday. And as a result, and they've had their ideas of like, you know, where the strength slide in free agency versus where the strength slide in the draft. At this point, a lot of the big holes have been pretty filled up. You know, obviously you can argue like outside or linebacker is another one they really need to fill. Number two tight end is another one. Left tackle is one that like if you had an opportunity to get a guy, you, you certainly should do it. Um, safety is another one that like, you know, you have some people there, but if you had the chance to upgrade, you definitely should type of a deal. But I think that there are certainly some players out there left in free agency who have not gotten calls from other teams yet, that if they continue to not get calls from other teams, the team would certainly, like, bring them in, see if maybe they could be a fit. They have 81 players currently on the roster. So, I mean, um, there are things that can move around at this point in time. So you mentioned linebacker and tight end. Are you surprised that Washington hasn't done more, at least not yet, at those two positions? Actually, I am, to be quite frank with you. Now, the... I say I'm surprised. I'm mostly surprised with tight end. And the only reason why is because they were able to find somebody in Logan Thomas last year who didn't get a lot of reps, but, you know, basically could see the potential that he had. I looked at a guy like Dan Arnold, who was with the Arizona Cardinals, and kind of a similar deal. So basically, he wasn't particularly great at blocking, so his role pretty much stayed the same um, when they had injuries to their number one tight end. But he's a good pass catcher. I think he had four touchdowns last year. He had 41 receptions, something along those lines. 
Um, you get a guy with like Ryan Fitzpatrick who is known for spreading the ball around. We've talked about that quite a bit. You know, you would think maybe that's a guy that could possibly get brought in. And I, I don't know. I have to go and look and see like, you know, maybe scheme fit wise. Is that somebody they would like to look at? That could be a suggestion that maybe Thaddeus Moss is somebody that has done some things in the offseason that maybe they like. I mean, that's certainly a possibility as well, too. But the linebacker one, I think, is the one maybe there were some guys, I think, uh, trying to think, the one that plays for the Las Vegas Raiders right now, Morrow, um, Justin Morrow, I believe. And he was somebody that they had some interest in, but he resigned with the team on a one-year deal. Um, so I don't know if there was just maybe, I don't know, the numbers maybe didn't work out, whatever the case may have been. But linebacker is one where they want somebody with a Kevin Pierre-Louis skill set in the sense of they need somebody who can cover the tight end, somebody who can keep up in pass coverage. As a matter of fact, he was their highest rated um, coverage guy, not just in the linebacker core, but just overall on the team. And I know he, you know, covered guys a lot less than the quarterbacks, but I think he had like an 86.9, if I remember correctly, like rating in pro football focus. So he was very good, very adept at that. They need somebody that can do something along those lines. And there are plenty of guys that are in the draft that kind of fit that mold. They're fast, they're young, they can move around very quickly. Um, if you need to send them on a blitz, they can do that for you. But mostly and primarily, they can play that will linebacker spot. And they're a guy that, hey, I need you to cover this this running back coming out of the backfield. I need you to cover this tight end. I need you possibly to play with this slot receiver. There are plenty of guys that are in this draft class and that could be there at number 19 where it's like, you know, hey, we if we, you know, if we can get that guy – sign him for, you know, four years with a fifth-year option, maybe that's the best pathway to go here as opposed to trying to go out to free agency and find a guy. Yeah. So at some level, I'm surprised. At another level, strategically speaking, that's a spot in the draft that's very deep in that particular position. But tight end maybe is the one that I'm I'm a little more, you know, surprised by, depending on, like, what they feel about the guys they have in house. Yeah, no doubt. Definitely depth at tight end. I mean, after Logan Thomas last season, there wasn't a lot there, and there's even less now with the news coming out on Wednesday that Jeremy Sprinkle was going to Dallas. So, you mentioned the draft. We're three weeks away from the first round. Do you believe that Washington will take a quarterback at some point in the draft, or do you think that Washington has done at quarterback this offseason? It would have to be somebody that they like. And just, I, actually, it's funny to ask. I have a story coming out on Monday where I kind of look at Martin Mayhew and Marty Kearney's draft history. And the thing is, is that Mayhew only ever drafted one quarterback. And that was Matthew Stafford. But outside of that, in his eight seasons, he never drafted another quarterback. And on the second round, third round, fourth round, fifth round, he did not ever draft another quarterback. Now, Marty Herney did draft a guy. Like, he had somebody in first round, Cam Newton, obviously. He had somebody second round, third round as well, too. Like, he was a little bit more – the only round he didn't draft a quarterback was the seventh round, from what I looked at. So – there's a little bit of a breakdown. Like, it could happen, but I wouldn't necessarily expect it to happen in the first round just because I don't think that they'll be able to get one of the guys that they really like and they feel like would bring value to them at number 19. I think if they were going to get a guy, they have to feel like the value is matching up with where they're taking him in the draft. Um, but that's really what that's about. If somebody should fall, yeah, I think they might take a quarterback. It's like you, you don't pass up on a quarterback you think is the guy for the franchise future if you can get to him at 19 or if there's a chance for you to move up slightly in the draft. That's something else that I would say is that the two of them are not afraid to make deals. Now, typically speaking, they don't give up their first round picks, but they do find ways to, to move up if necessary for somebody that they really like if they see that guy. Um, but they have to really like the guy. Yeah. So I don't know if they'll do it in the first round, but I certainly think it's a possibility if somebody should slide and or if there's somebody that you see in the, the second, the third round who you feel like lines up again with the value, like this guy fits right about where we are in the draft at this point in time. Like we're not reaching to get this guy and if things don't work out, we will be frustrated we didn't go and get somebody else. Essentially, I don't think so. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. That, that makes total sense. And, and that does seem in line with the way Ron Rivera has spoken about the draft. They have never seemed to be overly willing to sacrifice a bunch of picks to take a guy. And, and honestly, I don't blame them because these trade-ups to take quarterbacks, they do not seem to be working out, whether you're talking Sam Darnold or Jared Goff or Carson Wentz or Mitchell Trubisky, like all these teams making all these trades to take all these quarterbacks. And then they want out from those quarterbacks just a few years later. Yeah, I mean, you look at some of the successful quarterbacks. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is a guy. Like, you can sit there and say, like, you know, you kind of sit, generally speaking, like, in your ballpark. You can move up a little bit and right. get the guy. Right, Um, But you don't need to overreach. But, yeah, I mean, you make a fantastic point. You literally just named a litany of different quarterbacks who, again, like, teams just had – they spent so much. They compromised their future in the draft moving forward for what payoff? Carson Wentz didn't even win the Super Bowl for the Eagles the year that they won it. I mean, that was Nick Foles. Now, obviously, he did a lot for them, in, obviously, in the lead-up to that, but – Outside of that, Jared Goff, I mean, you trade him to the Detroit Lions, not not for a bag of peanuts per, per se. I mean, it wasn't as bad as, like, you know, DeAndre Hopkins trade, certainly. But, I mean, this is a guy that took them places, and for whatever reason, they could not mend it. Um, they, they, they're not. I can tell you, just looking at, like, the numbers and looking at the history between Herney and making the end, even Ron Rivera, they very much believe that they can build a team through the draft, in addition to the fact that they like to play the guys that they draft. You see that with Cam Curl. You see that with James Smith-Williams. Um you know, you try, they, you see them trying to do it with City Charles last year, fourth round pick guy and Antonio Gandy Golden, but obviously both of them had injuries. They, they simply will not give up a ton of draft picks. Literally the least amount of picks that either one of these two guys ever had at any point in time was five. And that was phenomenally more often than not. These guys had at a minimum eight draft picks in each of the draft classes that they had between the two of them. So they're, they, these people believe that they can get some young guys in and that they can be pretty productive. They believe in their scouting department. Um, and what they see on the tape to make them believe that whoever they bring in will be a productive member of the team. So Ron Rivera did say last Thursday that Ryan Fitzpatrick is starting off as Washington's starting quarterback, but also that there will be a competition. Uh, do you buy that? Did you buy that Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen or whoever else ends up as part of the mix will have a realistic shot at being Washington's starting quarterback? Or do you think Ron was just saying what he felt like he had to say? I mean, he said he was going to have a competition last year. I think he really – Ron, to me, it seems and has always been very genuine. And I think when he said he wanted a competition last year, I think he really meant he wanted a competition last year. And I think he really kicked himself for not having a competition. I think he really was sitting there looking back at the situation like, you know, what would have happened if maybe we would have had Kyle Allen actually going toe-to-toe with Dwayne Haskins last year? Like, could some of those games have been different? I mean, you see the hole that they put themselves in starting the season off um, one and four. So, I mean – that obviously had to be something in the back of his mind that you just say, like, you know, I learned from that lesson. What I will say is this. When Taylor Heineke spoke after he was, you know, given the extension, we asked him, okay, what is the impression that you got from the coaching staff about what's about to happen? And long story short was that he said, I think there's going to be, we're going to, we're going to push each other, basically. I think they will push each other. I don't think that that's a farce or like a smokescreen. I really think that whoever comes out on top, they're going to have to fight for it between these two guys. And certainly a guy like a Taylor Heineke, you saw the way he played in the playoff game. He had nothing to lose. Same thing with the Carolina Panthers games. He took more risk because he's trying to show that he could play in the league. And I think that that's a big thing for him too. It's just like, you know, they obviously bought in Ryan Fitzpatrick, but he has to be thinking in his mind, it's like, well, look, they just signed me to a two-year extension. I still don't want to get too comfortable here. Like, I want to stay here. I'm going to get put my best foot forward. Kyle Allen certainly has to be very motivated. He's only on a one-year deal. He has no guaranteed money in his contract. So it's one of those situations where it's like, I mean, I don't want to take the foot off the gas either. I mean, I want to kind of show these guys, look, I can do this as well, too. And not the least of which is that Ron Rivera traded away a fifth-round draft pick for him last year to bring yeah. him to Washington. So I don't think he's just saying that just to say it simply because. I genuinely think he means that 
these guys are going to make each other better. I think about the running back room last year. I mean, you had a lot of guys. We were surprised when Adrian Peterson got cut. But what happened is that, um, what's the face it? Antonio Gibson got pushed a lot because he was working against a Hall of Famer. I think that the same thing will happen here. I do think that Ryan Fitzpatrick is your day one starter. But I think that iron sharpens iron, and that's really the way that they're going about this is that, look, you can be the starter, but you're going to have to prove it against these other two guys. And you already saw what Taylor Heineke did. I mean, he put more pressure on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers than any other team that they faced in the playoffs their entire Super Bowl run. So certainly don't sleep on them and don't get comfortable. That that was one thing that Taylor Heineke said is like, we don't want guys to feel entitled like you just give them the job. And that always sat with me because I was kind of like, hmm, it could be a slight dig, but I think that was something that if you give people the impression that there is no pressure on them and that we're just giving this to you, people handle it very differently than we'll say, hey, best man wins. We'll yeah, I, I think that's the way to do it. And you know, I think definitely Ryan Fitzpatrick comes in as the favorite, and Ron certainly positioned him as such. But I'm with you on Heineke and Allen. Like, I, I don't like these people who are just, like, dismissing them and, oh, you know, there's no way those guys can be the guy. Like, let's see. I mean, what Heineke did against the Bucks, that was a special performance, especially given the circumstances. Let's just see. Like, no one has any certainty about what he is, but let's not cap what he can be. Like, I just want to see more. Let's kind of see where this Heineke story goes. Let's see where the Kyle Allen story goes. And in the meantime, if Fitzpatrick has to be the starter, so be it. I mean, it's funny to me with Fitzpatrick because he's obviously older. He's obviously bounced around the league a ton. He's never made the postseason. But he's played at a high level over the last few years. And the, the, the notion of him coming here and drastically improving the quarterback play, I do think is plausible. Like, I'm actually excited to see what he can do with this offense. You co-authored a very good piece for the Athletic DC that came out a few weeks ago about how Fitzpatrick will fit in Washington's offense. How good of a fit is Fitzpatrick for what Scott Turner does? It's a great fit. I think really one of the things that we talked about and one of the things my other colleagues were alluding to is the fact, outside of the turnovers, which is obviously a big part of the is, is an antithesis of Scott Turner's offense or Nora Turner offense, but outside of that, literally when he was talking in the press conference, I was I was smiling because in the story we talked about you don't need a big arm to function well in this particular offense, but you do need to have good timing. You do need to understand the ins and outs of this offense, and you do need to have very good rhythm with your wide receivers. And the offense functions absolutely best when everybody is involved. You can't just have necessarily one guy that everybody knows is going to be the guy in this particular offense. It works the best when it's like, okay, so who's going to be this time? This yeah. Which is why you bring in Curtis Samuel, which is why you bring in Adam Humphreys, because, okay, like if both of them on the field, well, typically, you know, you think of Curtis Samuel being, you know, obviously a slot guy, but Adam Humphreys is typically speaking a slot guy. So, okay, now, like, what do you do there? But the reason I think that Ryan Fitzpatrick could work so well is that he does have a lot of experience, and he is reconnecting with Ken Zampese, who was his former quarterbacks coach, which is something I was actually surprised that, you know, I feel like a lot of people just overlook that one. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess the quarterbacks coach would, you know, might have a say in right. this whole fighting the quarterback situation. Right. Um, but that should help ease the transition. And, I mean, he's going to make this wide receiver room grow up. I mean, you have a wide receiver group. You talk about how Alex Smith helped these wide receivers, who a lot of them did have a lot of experience, how they got better playing with him. The same thing can very much be true with Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's worked with a lot of different guys. He knows how to talk to a lot of different people. He understands how to get guys in rhythm. And realistically speaking, with any sport, if people feel like you're never going to give them the ball, I mean, at least in the sports, like, or hockey, I guess, with the puck, if people never think you're going to give them something, like a stake in the matter, they're not going to be engaged. They're not going to be participating or anything else along those lines. But he's the kind of quarterback where he forces you to pretty much always be on your A game to really run that route because, hey, you actually might get the ball. So, like, you can't just sit there and act like, well, I don't definitively know that I might be – I might just be the decoy guy. No, that's not the way you could think about that in this particular situation. Um, 
And as far as the pushing people goes, I mean, one of the things I'll say is that it's great to have competition. If you have played sports, you know how good competition is, even if you don't end up being the starter or the person that's like the lead dog, simply because you got better going up against the person that did go up in front. So and look, Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen, if they should lose this, at the end of the day, you went up against the starter. You probably pushed him quite a bit. He probably pushed you too. You did some things that you may not have otherwise done, but quite frankly, you should come out better for the wear from the situation. Yep. Really, that works out much, much better because, again, you saw they had four different quarterbacks last year. You really want everybody to be as prepared as humanly possible for the idea that, hey, if something happens, we need you to step in and immediately. We don't want to see a drop-off in this particular offense. And certainly you saw that, with again, with Taylor Heineke, I don't think you should. It's one game, so you don't want to conflate it. But, again, no other team that faced the Tampa Bay Buccaneers had the same level of success that this guy that was studying for his exams in (laughs) mid-November. I know. He's, He's studying for exams at ODU, walks off the street, and ends up pushing the Bucks to their limit. Uh, on a Saturday night on Super Wildcard Weekend. We're talking with Washington football team insider Rhiannon Walker of the Athletic DC. So getting away from quarterback, great job by you breaking the news on Thursday that Washington has hired 26-year-old Natalia Durantis as coordinator of football programs. First Latina in NFL history to serve such a role. Uh, I know you wrote about this, but like, what exactly is that role, coordinator of football programs? Literally, she's going to be the point person for, you know, when you think about like five major heads. So, for instance, you have equipment, you have medical, you have strength, you have obviously the football people as well, too, and public relations. She's going to have a stake in all of these matters. That's So one of the big things that I pointed out is the fact that she's going to plan, obviously, practices, if like the offseason program, depending on like how that's working out. The NFL PA and the NFL are working out like what that logistically speaking will look like. But one of the things that was mentioned is that this team might go back to Richmond. She will have a hand in working that out. So making sure that all the coaches, all the players have what they need when they get down there. Obviously, that's a big deal because, as we know, the team's contract with Richmond was supposed to end last year. So mm-hmm. that's something in and of itself that's like you're just getting brought into this job. You're going to be the voice for Ron Rivera. Now you're getting tasked with this particular situation. One of the things is that she's just working on is the pregame schedule for Ron Rivera. He even said, like, I don't just show up. Um, let's face it. Um, She's like, you know, I don't just show up to game days and like just walk in. Like there's a lot of rigmarole that goes into it. She's the one that's overseeing all of that rigmarole now. And like in terms of what will happen, like how that will all be coordinated time-wise and things of that nature. But in addition to that, she's going to be the one setting the schedule for all their practices, um, organized training activities, May camps, things of that nature. She will be the one. One of the things with her background is she used to work at Texas A&M, um, and I believe you alluded to that, and so she worked with recruiting a lot of times. She made sure that the recruits' families had what they needed. The agents, when they came in to talk to recruits, who they were going to sign, they had what they needed. Mike McCartney is somebody who spoke very highly of her. Now she's coming in. What she's going to do is she's going to work with the scouting department when it comes to the scouts, when it comes to the free agents that they're bringing in, when it comes to the meetings. Obviously, we know those are all important things. I mean, you can't have those type, especially in this particular virtual world where, you know, you, you just can't mess those kinds of things up. So she's going to have to navigate and make sure that everybody has exactly what they need when they're here and that everything is maximized. She's touching on all of these various points. And this is the fact that she will do some stuff on the business side as well, too. And so if there's any inbound things that come for uh, Ron Rivera, she can be the one that says, I don't think he's going to want to do that. He does not have the time to do that. And so, therefore, we're saying no to this particular situation. Or she's like, I think he would be pretty interested in doing this type of thing. Um, he still has some follow-up meetings with, uh, let's face it, as a result of his cancer. Like, obviously, he's cancer-free. But there's still just some, some checkups and stuff like that. And he said, like, that's something that, you know, she makes sure that he has his schedule set in that, that regard, too. Like, yeah, you can't forget that you have this, this meeting with your doctor. You have this check-in coming up, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, um, 
that's a, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like I, there might, there's probably a lot more, but I mean, that's a lot right in the yeah. I mean, she's yeah, really sure. being handed off all of his daily duties, something that he's been handling ever since he worked in quality control when he was first brought on with the Philadelphia Eagles. He's used to handling everything. This is a big deal for him to concede this kind of power because he even said, I've never had a chief of staff like position. So it's interesting you mentioned Richmond. I had assumed, I'm guessing a lot of people had assumed that Richmond was off the table, that Washington was done doing training camp in Richmond. Uh, apparently that's not so, that uh, Washington could be back doing camp in Richmond this summer? There's a possibility, yeah. And and I even wrote about that. I, the point of the story was obviously not about that. It was just something that, like, that's a big deal for her to be handling that. Because, yeah. To your point, I mean, we weren't really sure what was going to happen with that, if there would be off-site because of the fact that coronavirus is still happening. We don't know what the vaccination rollouts are looking at in various places, but yeah, they're, they are not sure that final decision could come out a month before training camp starts. Mm-hmm. So we'll so, see. Um, we, we will see, but that was, that would be something that she would work on. The hiring of Durantis obviously continues this trend of the Washington football team becoming more diverse, right? Jason Wright, Julie Donaldson, Jennifer King, Martin Mayhew. Did you know, is all of this because of Ron Rivera? Like, is this his doing, Washington making these groundbreaking hirings and becoming more diverse? Or is there more to what's behind this than just Ron? No, it's just... You know, it's funny when we were talking to Ron yesterday, uh, my colleague Lindsay and I, Lindsay Jones and I were both on the call. And one of the things he said is that I bring in people that I can trust and people that I know are capable of doing the job. And that I think that's fairly apparent. I mean, you saw that at least with, on the football side, you could very clearly see that the product on the field finally started to look like what fans had been looking for, for all these years. Confident. The team had the number two defense overall. They had the number two passing defense you see that you bring in these people who you believe that if you can concede the power to them, that they will be able to take advantage of that, right? That's what this is. I mean, is it cool, for instance, that you have Jennifer King, who is a black woman, and she's the first black woman to be a full-time coach? Yeah, that's that's cool as hell, Al. I mean, it's really cool. But did you see the work that she was able to do with Antonio Gibson? Did you see the work that she was able to do with J.D. McKissick? He just had a career year. You bring in people that are capable of doing it. I mean, and one of the things that Ron said is that a lot of these women are overqualified. You just don't look at them because they're women or yeah. because they're this, that, and a third. I mean, but they should be considered in the, um, let's face it, when being interviewed because, for instance, with Jennifer King, I mean, she's got multiple titles. Like, she's won at every single level, and I've written about this quite a bit. She has won at every level she's been at, middle, at high school, college, and as a coach. She's just won. She knows how to win. Why wouldn't you want that kind of a person on your staff? Um, people get hung up on the fact that she's a woman and she's a black woman, but it's like, but look at her resume. I mean, she's really good at what she does. She understands the game. And I mean, any of the players you talk to, they don't sit there looking at her like, oh, they like, that's just, you know, that's just Coach King. That's all that there is to it. Julie Donaldson, I mean, she's been doing this for years. Some people come in with a new perspective. I mean, you come in with different ideas. Look, you create a new culture and things of that nature as well, too. You want some people that are going to have a stake in the matter. That's something that Ron said quite frequently. It's like when you give, when you can see people power, when you give them, and when they say, like, I had this idea, and, like, you go forward and say, oh, yeah, I think that's a great idea. You should do it. Now i got to go execute it. Let me see what you can do. You have this idea. You think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. Let me see you do it. And then from there, people get more confidence. You look at some of the stuff that Julie Donaldson and them have done with the media, with the media part, like being in the broadcast booth, how that's been restructured and things of that nature. Jason Wright. The whole fan network thing, uh, excuse me, fan network thing they just rolled out, or even the giving fans a stake in this whole name debate and everything else like that. You know, you're going to change the team name. You have this fan base that is very loyal, that is very invested in this matter. Why wouldn't you include them? 
it sometimes I think that solutions to problems are much more simple than um than people would like them to be. But sometimes it's like sometimes the thing that makes people happy is just like letting them know like, hey, your voice is valued here. Yeah. Um some of your suggestions are being your suggestions are being heard. We may not take them, but at least we're listening to them. We're hearing what you all have to say about them so that you guys can continue to have a stake in this matter, continue to be proud of what you guys are rooting for on the field on Sundays. I think that it is not huh. If people, I guess, to my, the way I look at it is like, if people think that people are being brought in simply because they are minorities and to be a distraction and things of that nature, I'm like, that would take away, that's really disrespectful in a lot of ways because it's like, a lot of these people have worked really hard. They've worked their ass off. Excuse my French, and I don't know if I can say that on the podcast. They've worked their ass off. You can say that. To be in the position. Yeah. yeah they, they've worked their ass off to be in this position in the first place. They have years of experience, and it's a disrespect to them to say, yeah, you were just brought, brought in as the, like, the token black person. You were just brought in as the token woman. You were brought in, brought in as the token Latina person. She's 26 years old, and she's getting this job. What, what, and Mike McCartney, one of the most respected agents in the NFL, is singing her praises. Why do you think that is? Maybe it's because she's really good at what she does. Look at what she's been able to do. I mean, you go from social media to recruiting, to the NFL. The woman is not afraid to adapt. You need people like that on your team. Jason Wright, everything, I, every person I talked to, whether it was Joe Thomas, whether it was other people, like, oh, shoot, um, oh, gosh, now I'm forgetting, uh, Kurt Warner, they talked about how cerebral he is, how good he is at working with other people. You need those kind of people that are in your room to talk about, not the least of which is that he, he graduated from a prestigious business school after he finished his career in the NFL. The guy is just good. And you want a person like that in your room. No. I think this is so interesting to follow. And I think it's one of these sneaky things with Ron in that because he has expanded their net, you know, because they're casting a wider net now when it comes to who they hire, they're getting these incredibly gifted people. Like if, if there's never been a full-time black assistant female coach in the NFL, and you tap into that and you get the best of the bunch in Jennifer King. Like you're really upgrading your organization in that way. If others have disregarded that pool of people for whatever reason, and you're the first one to go into it and you get the best of the bunch, you're really upgrading your organization when you do that. Same thing with someone like a Natalia Durantis. So like j- just from purely that perspective, I-, I think this does so many good things for the team, making it better, making it smarter making it more efficient. It, it, it's been a, a really interesting trend to follow with the team uh, over the last few years here. So also, I want to get your take on this because another thing we've had going on with the team, of course, is Dan Snyder officially buying out his disgruntled minority investors. This, though, as we're still awaiting the findings, at least publicly, maybe privately the findings have been revealed, but at least publicly, of the Beth Wilkinson investigation. And you have a very unique perspective on all this because you were among the victims of the sexual harassment. What do you make of us still not having heard definitively of the findings of the Beth Wilkinson investigation and of Dan Snyder seemingly going nowhere anytime soon with this recent major increase in his power? I am, uh, what's the word I want? I don't like anything that's serious to be rushed. I would be, frankly, more disrespected, quite frankly, because uh, I did talk to the investigators. I would be more disrespected if they felt compelled to rush this just because, for whatever reason. I, I would be pretty upset about that. That's how I would feel about this situation. Turn over every stone, talk to everybody you need to talk to, get as much information as you possibly can get. Because here's the thing, I mean, Dan Slater has 100% ownership of it right now, but what if the findings say he needs to sell the team? Congratulations, you have 100% ownership for now. 
What if that's what the findings say? What if there's more that people don't know about? What if there are more egregious things that have come up? I can't speak to any of those things. I'm not beyond the fact that I interviewed. I can't tell you any more insight into what else has come out, come about from the situation. But what I can tell you is that I really hope they don't rush this. I don't think anything good comes out of anything that has ever been, um, sped up more so than it needs to be. And this is not the kind of thing that you want to do. If you, if you half-ass this, there are going to be a lot more people upset about it than I will be. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. Find out what you need to find out. Talk to all the people that are involved. Find out how far it goes, how many years it's gone on for. And when you come to the conclusion, I'm expecting that conclusion to be derived from doing the best possible job that you possibly could have done in the situation. Anything less than that is complete failure in this regard. If you just come up with some results simply because people are starting to ask for it and there's some pressure and all those other things like that, you didn't do the job. I, I mean, frankly, I wouldn't have wanted to be interviewed for something that they're going to not do at 100% effort here. I don't think that's what's happening. I'm just simply saying that I'd be fairly disappointed because that was certainly not the impression that I was given when I was spoken to is that this is going to be a very thorough and it could be a long it could be a long investigation. All right, fine. We'll do the job that you guys need to do. That's how I feel. I let people, for instance, with The Washington Post. I um I feel like I've said this before, but I knew the Washington Post story was coming out before it was coming out. I knew Sunday, I think I said that in my first person, I knew Sunday was coming out. I didn't say anything about it, even though people on social media were talking about this news story and everything else like that, and I knew what it was about. I said nothing about it. I said, do the research that you guys need to do. Get as far into it as you need to get into it, and I'll let you guys do your thing. I did not break their story for them. I respect the work that they did, and it happened the way it did. They happened to come out with another part later on because other people came out after that first story. That's what happens when you do a job well. Yeah. Other people and other people see that you carry it with consideration and compassion, and you're thorough in with what you do. People will look at that and say, "Oh, I, I want to talk," or like, "I saw how you guys handled that." And that makes me respect the work that you did. That makes me feel comfortable in speaking with you. That's what can happen when you do the job well. When you do the job poorly, however, it's the complete opposite. It makes people not want to talk about it. It means that you might not get as much information as is available to you um, simply because you got overzealous, too excited, or all those things like that. So me personally, I, this is just me personally. Of course, I would love to see the findings. I would. Um, I have a personal stake in the matter, and professionally, I have to cover the team. And it's at sometimes I wouldn't actually, I wouldn't even say it's all that difficult. It's like, my personal feelings are what they are. And my job is when they come out with this report, we'll see what the report says. But Dan Snyder currently having 100% ownership. Again, I mean, anything could happen from here. The recommendation could be fairly extensive. It could, I mean, there are allegations against him specifically that at least I think what two that we know of, there right. could be more, there could be less, they could stay the same. I truly don't know. But you don't know what the recommendation is going to be. I don't know how things change by him having 100% ownership in the team or anything else along those lines per se. could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. I just – I am sitting back and I am being patient, and I'm not going to get myself overexcited about anything one way or the other. That's all. Do you believe the investigation is still going on, or do you think it's over? No, I think it's still going on. Okay. And do you believe the findings will be made public or not necessarily? Hmm. No, that's a good question. I don't know. I can't remember if I asked them that question. I really can't. Um, I don't know if they would have told me because they also know I'm a reporter. So, like, I don't know if they would have told me that one or yeah. the other. Yeah. Um, I'll say this. I don't know if they're going to be made public. But I think they should be made public. I don't know how you have a transparent, you know, uh, what's it, an investigation into the, this entire thing and then don't make it 
public? Why would my question is why would you not make it public? Right, right. Yeah, that's I mean, it, like it's a great point. That's the end game here. What's what do you have to lose if your end game is to be transparent? If your end game is to foster trust, how do you foster trust? You show all your cards because you have nothing to hide, right? No doubt. You know, I think what's throwing people off is this was announced in July. We're now into April and still nothing has been said. And it's just like, is it really taking this long or is there something else going on here that we're not aware of? And then in the midst of all this, Dan becomes more powerful than ever before, seemingly eradicating the idea of him being removed or, you know, even suspended for a while. Like he's in a more powerful position than he's ever been in throughout all this. So you just wonder, you're wondering like, where is this investigation? Did it just find nothing? Is it already over? Is there still like a bombshell to come? Like we're kind of all in the dark on this. You know what? I'll say, how I'll say this. Um, even in a room full of people, when everybody, there was a number of people, there are people who worked in the media who saw the situation with me and Alex Santos, right? That was in February, 2019. Or excuse me, it was March, 2019. Forgive me. The, it, it was in midnight, so it shifted a day. Okay, that happened in March, February 2019, right? That story did not come out another year and a half, correct? Yeah. Even though there were people in that room who were reporters, there was a room full of people that saw the entire thing happen, right? Yeah. Just because something is obvious, just because something seems straightforward, <laughs> again, the easy story there is like reporter harassed by a member of the Washington football team, right? That's the easy story. Everybody, people saw that, right? But there's more to it. There was what the Washington Post reported on is a culture of people who exhibit this kind of behavior. Do you know how hard it is to find a video of somebody on a hot mic saying something, that, saying that an intern has a hot ass? Do you know how hard that is to find people willing to give you that kind of information? In addition to the fact that I didn't talk about it to anybody outside of the people I spoke to, my bosses and the people with the team, the general counsel, until July. Outside of that, not too many people who were not there or were not in that room did not know that I happened to me so you talk to people you find out different stuff and you talk to some people and they may tell you some more stuff and you find some other people and things that nature it since some people don't want to talk i happen to want to talk because i mean again i have a very supportive company behind me and i was willing to do so and i think that it serves to help other people but not everybody has that some people have their ndas involved there are lots of things that prevent people from talking and people change their mind there's so much that goes on it's hard to explain that to people if you if you haven't worked around it or if you haven't seen it, I, I don't think this, act, this process is actually going to me, at least. As it's not going as slowly as people think. But again, like I've been around investigations like this or when I've had to do reports, it just takes a long time. Yeah. I mean, even the story that, um, that Mina Kimes did, um, one, I forget his name, Jared, I can't remember the New York Mets, uh, general manager who just got fired. His last name is escaping me right now. But she said that it, she start, she got her first tip on that story in 2016. She didn't report that story until 2021. It's not that she didn't want to, it's that you need people who want to talk about these kinds of things and have enough evidence and things of that nature to come up with a factual, substantiated finding. Because here's the thing, let's say, let's say that they find that he should be removed as the owner of the team. Don't you think the Dan Snyder is going to fight back against that? Don't you want an ironclad, uh, set of evidence so that it's like, look, you can fight this if you want to, but here's what we found. So you go to court if you want to. You can try to drag this out. You can go kicking and screaming if you so desire, but this is what we found talking to all these people over the last year. There's no chance in hell of you getting out of this one, bud. (laughs) 
that's that's that to be frank but that's what that's what you want you don't want a big to do like you want to have whatever evidence you can have so that basically you say look these are the cards this is how bad it is so you go forward and you do it if you want to but this is what we have and it's not pretty that's the kind of evidence that you want that's the kind of evidence you don't get by rushing an investigation you literally have to take a great deal of time and it's painstaking and sometimes it is extremely frustrating it's more frustrating for the for the people that have been victimized by people but um you know, it's, you just have to take your time. Yeah. Nothing good comes from anything being rushed. No, I hear you. You want to be thorough. And Beth Wilkinson, I mean, she is certainly not an amateur. She has been in the game for a while. She knows how to do this. And uh, hopefully justice is served ultimately uh, with this. But it took a lot of guts and a lot of courage for you to come out the way that you did. Uh, I wish you nothing but the best. Continued success. Keep killing it. Covering the Washington football team. It's been great reading your stuff uh, throughout the offseason here. And uh, stay safe and have a happy birthday weekend that's coming up. Enjoy yourself. Thank you so much, Al. I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me on your podcast. Again, I'm so happy to see that you're doing this. Um, and again, I'm sorry about the whole Team 980 stuff, but it's been a pleasure to see you continue to be active and everything else like that and seeing people on your podcast. I mean, you're a pro's pro. I've always enjoyed coming on with you. I appreciate you always thinking of me. Um, it's really cool. So I'm happy for you, my friend. And thank you again for the birthday wish. I thank you very much. Very nice of you to say that. All the best, Rhiannon. Thanks. All right. Talk to you later, Al. Great stuff there from Rhiannon Walker. Not an easy thing she went through, to say the least. I give her a ton of credit for dealing with it and for being open enough to talk about it with us here uh, on this podcast. Curious about your thoughts on what we just heard? You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So when we talked on Monday's podcast about the very good weekend for Mark Turgeon, the news that he's being extended by Maryland on Friday, the news that Maryland had landed not one but two prominent transfers on Saturday, Kudus Wahab and Fats Russell. I did say regarding Turgeon's contract extension, uh, the money is going to be significant. The details are going to be significant, right? Like what exactly is this extension going to be looking like? And then, of course, we got the news on Monday that Daryl Morsell, the reigning Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year, could be leaving Maryland, uh, either via turning pro or transferring. He's put his name into the transfer portal. So that was a bit of a buzzkill if you're the turds, but still, you were getting extended. Well, on Wednesday, we finally got the official announcement. Maryland Director of Athletics Damon Evans on Wednesday evening officially announcing an agreement with Turgeon to extend his contract through the 2025-2026 season. Turgeon's existing contract, which was the result of an extension signed in October 2016, ran through the 2022 2023 season. So this new extension takes Turgeon forward three more years into again 2025-2026 through that season. So the most significant terms of the Turgeon extension have to do with the buyout. The extension does not allow for Maryland to buy out Turgeon for less than two and a half million dollars until May 1st, 2025. Now, two and a half million dollars in normal times a big-time, big-money, power-five conference university can afford. But in these current times, it's maybe not so easy. And especially when you consider Maryland's predicament, I wouldn't just assume at all that $2.5 million as a buyout is a layup. Remember, on the same Friday, this past Friday, Good Friday, on which the news broke that Maryland is extending Turgeon, the University of Maryland put out an update on the university's finances and budget announcing 
that the COVID-19 pandemic cost the school's intercollegiate athletics $40 million in revenues, right? Talking about ticket sales, sponsorships, etc. We also have had this year the news in January that Maryland reached with the family of Jordan McNair a settlement of $3.5 million. Uh, Maryland's athletic department is not exactly in stellar financial shape. So the buyout stuff with Turgeon's extension matters because in a lot of ways, the buyout terms act as a safeguard against Turgeon being fired. Now, $2.5 million is the minimum buyout until May 1st, 2025. Turgeon's buyout is at $5 million from May 1st of this year through April 30th of next year. The buyout then gradually goes down. The buyout drops to $4.5 million for the next year then drops by a million dollars per year until May 1st, 2025. And then starting then, Maryland owes nothing for a buyout. So yes, as time goes on, the buyout, and this makes sense, becomes less onerous. But for now, $5 million buyout. Turgeon ain't going nowhere uh, for at least a year or two, at least a year or two. And we should note this, the contract allows for Turgeon to raise his buyouts via incentives, i.e., he makes a sweet 16. He makes an elite eight. Okay, stop stop laughing. All right, that's not cool. Stop laughing, all right? Turgeon has an incentive if he makes an elite eight. Stop laughing, okay? It's not funny. There's an incentive in the contract if he makes an elite eight, okay? Please, let's be professionals here, all right? Stop it. Stop doing that, okay? If he makes an elite eight, he gets an incentive, okay? It raises the buyout, okay? So anyway, the buyout... The buyout terms are not set in stone, okay? And if high achievement is attained, Mark Turgeon's buyouts go up even more. So here's the bottom line with this extension, as best as we can tell. He's probably not going anywhere anytime soon, okay? And he's going to have some leeway here to continue to have his Mark Turgeon-like seasons, okay? So if Maryland uh, goes, say, first round NCAA tournament win, second round NCAA tournament loss next year, Turgeon's not getting fired, okay? If Maryland, the next season is, say, two and done in the NCAA tournament or one and done in the NCAA tournament or maybe doesn't even make the NCAA tournament at all, even then, I would not be all of a sudden saying, yeah, okay, he's definitely out. Like, no, contractually, it's not going to be easy and it's hard to envision the university's financial situation with the athletic department turning around drastically anytime soon. Now, it's going to get better as we come out of the pandemic, but this is still a rough time here, especially with the state of Maryland football, which has not done well in recent years. And Maryland basketball has lost some luster. Like that's, you know, that's one of the things about the last decade here with Mark Turgeon. Maryland basketball, it's just, it's not as sexy as it was in the heyday, in part because of the style of play, but in part too, just because the, 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 the program, while it's been okay, hasn't been special. Again, lack of high achievement. And so people aren't locked into Maryland hoops like they were, say, 20 years ago when Maryland was making back-to-back Final Fours and when making the Sweet 16 was considered a given year in and year out. Maryland has made one Sweet 16 since the start of the 03-04 season, and it was that Mark Turgeon Sweet 16 in 2016. So yes, there is pressure on Mark Turgeon from a fan standpoint to have a big year this upcoming year. Yes, there is pressure on Mark Turgeon, I'm sure, internally. Like, I'm sure he within himself wants to have a big year. And Maryland is going to be poised to have a big year from a roster standpoint, especially if Aaron Wiggins and Eric Ayala come back. Now, I think they're probably both going to test the NBA draft waters. 
But I don't know that they're all going to be gone in terms of Wiggins, Ayala, and Morcel. So if at least two of those guys come back, you have Dante Scott a year older, a year wiser. You've got at least these two transfers in Kudus Wahab and Fats Russell. You know, you got talent here. Like there's going to, there are going to be expectations on Maryland going into next season. And it's going to be a very good opportunity for Mark Turgeon to add to his career total of two Sweet 16s. He made a Sweet 16 with Wichita State in 2006, made a Sweet 16 with Maryland in 2016, and that's it. 10 NCAA tournament appearances for the Turge as a major college head coach, right? His tenures with Wichita State, Texas A&M, and Maryland, just two Sweet 16s, that's it. And his teams did not go any further than those two Sweet 16. So he's going to have an opportunity for high achievement this upcoming year. And he probably is not going anywhere anytime soon. And I still do wonder about the extent to which the AD, Damon Evans, wanted to do this extension. Remember, Kevin Anderson was Maryland's director of athletics when Turgeon got hired as head coach in May 2011. I don't think Evans and Turgeon have a great relationship. I think it may be good enough to where they can coexist. But I don't think Evans wanted to do this extension for at least a while. Now, maybe his feelings changed, but Damon Evans was noncommittal about Mark Turgeon's future multiple times this past Maryland basketball season. I thought that spoke volumes, okay? And I would not have been, I would not be shocked at all if, in fact, Evans was kind of planning the next guy to be Maryland's head coach. If Evans was planning an ouster of Turgeon at the end of the season, and then things turned around to where, hey, he makes a tournament, Maryland wins a game in the tournament, does get smashed by Alabama in the second round, but that combined with, again, the financial state of the athletics department, just hard to justify buying out the Turge, especially when you had a number of other high-profile head coaching vacancies in college basketball over these last few weeks. And even if Maryland had grand designs on a specific person or even persons to replace Turgeon, there was no guarantee that you were going to get those guys. So yeah, like it or not, Mark Turgeon here to stay for at least a bit as Maryland's head coach. So incredibly, we on Wednesday night had both the Wizards and the Orioles winning. I'd love to know how many times that's happened over the last few years. I'm guessing not often, and yet it went down on Wednesday night. We will begin with the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, that team, our team, which won for just the fourth time in 16 games. Wizards wins, they don't happen often, but one did happen on Wednesday night, albeit against one of just two Eastern Conference teams worse than the Wizards this season. The only two teams in the East worse than the Wizards, the Orlando Magic and the Detroit Pistons. And sure enough, the Wiz won at Orlando on Wednesday night. 131-116 was the final. Now, of course, the game had to get close and was close for at least a little bit in the fourth quarter. Wizards actually did lead for the entire second half. Did allow, though, a 21-point third quarter lead to get cut to four in the fourth quarter, but the Wizards did then go on a 22-6 run. Wizards defense actually was not great on Wednesday night, but the Wizards offense was. It's not been a good offensive season for the Wizards, but they shot very well at the Magic. 57.6% shooting, including 19 of 36 on threes. Wizards finished the game with 35 assists versus 13 turnovers, and the Wizards did all these things because, in no small part, the team got healthier. Now, Daniel Gafford did remain out with his badly sprained right ankle. He's now missed five consecutive games, which, of course, remain 
without Thomas Bryant due to the partial left ACL tear that he suffered on January 9th. But the Wizards got back Bradley Beal, got back Rui Hachimura. Beal returned from a five-game absence caused by a right hip contusion, and Beal was good. Four six on threes, 26 points, five assists versus two turnovers, was only needed to play for 30 minutes, 22 seconds as a starter. Actually, the most notable thing about Beal is what he told NBC Sports Washington about this right hip situation. Quote, it's a little worse than just a contusion. I've got some nerve stuff going on too, end quote. So that's obviously something worth monitoring. I brought this up the other day on the podcast. Are we nearing the time in which uh, maybe it's tap out time for Bradley Beal this season in terms of if this right hip situation is maybe worse than we think? What's really the point anymore of him continuing to play in this lost season? I don't know that we're at that point yet, but that is something to be thinking about here, especially if, in fact, what Beal said is true. He's got nerve uh, stuff going on, as Beal put it, to NBC Sports Washington. But great to see Bradley Beal back. Great to see Rui Hachimura back. He returned from a two-game absence caused by right shoulder tightness. Uh, 0-3 on threes, 3-6 on twos, just nine points, but also seven rebounds and three steals in 30 minutes, 27 seconds as a starter. And Robin Lopez, who played for just 847 off the bench in the Wizards' previous game, that 103-101 loss to the Toronto Raptors in Tampa on Monday night due to right quad tightness. He was back playing for a while, and he was back to playing really well. 19 points on 9 of 11 shooting in 28 minutes, 54 seconds off the bench. I tell you, the Wiz have gotten some really good minutes out of Robin Lopez. At a Rolo, as he is known uh, over these last few weeks here. So Beal back, Hachimura back, Lopez presumably uh, back to better health. Russell Westbrook had another triple-double, extending his single season and career franchise records. 20th triple-double of the year, 23 points, 15 assists versus five turnovers, and 14 rebounds. And this was an efficient game for Russell Westbrook. Just the five turnovers for Westbrook, that's a good number. And three of three on threes, five of eight on twos, and four of four on free throws. Westbrook made his free throws on Wednesday night. That's not something he's done with any kind of frequency uh, over the course of this season. So Westbrook was really good. Davies Bertans had another good game. Good to see him back here uh, in recent games. Six of 11 on threes was Bertans on Wednesday night. That's more like it. That's the Davies Bertans. That's the Latvian laser we came to know and love last season. Uh, finished with 22 points in just 19 minutes, 40 seconds off the bench. Danny Avdia had a good game, continuing to start his seventh consecutive start. Uh, Avdia, four of seven on three, 16 points, five rebounds, and a game best plus minus rating of plus 19 and 29-31. And I mentioned the Wizards finishing with 35 assists. How about this? Ish Smith in just 13 minutes, 39 seconds off the bench, six points on three of five shooting, and seven assists versus no turnovers. It was that kind of night. The Wizards were firing on basically all cylinders offensively, 131 points in the game. Yeah, the defense wasn't perfect, but it didn't have to be with the Wizards shooting as they did. So the Wiz get to 18 and 32. Yes, 14 games below 500, tied now with the Cleveland Cavaliers for the fourth worst record in the Eastern Conference. Uh, next up for the Wiz, their six-game road trip continues with four games out west. Wizards are at the Golden State Warriors Friday night at 10, then at the Phoenix Suns Saturday night at 10. And whereas the Wizards won at a bad team on Wednesday night, the Orioles won at a very good team on Wednesday night. The Orioles avoiding a three-game sweep at the New York Yankees with a 4-3, 11-inning victory 
in the Bronx. Joe Angel, give it to me. And the Orioles again in the win column. <laughs> yes, I don't know how many times we're going to be able to play that this season. So play it we shall, especially off a win like the one the Orioles got on Wednesday evening. So the Orioles really had gotten humbled over the first two games of this series at the Yankees. Coming off the three-game season opening sweep at the Boston Red Sox, Orioles fall at the Yankees, 7-0 on Monday evening, then 7-2 on Tuesday evening. Starting pitching, very poor for the Orioles uh, in each of those two games. Wasn't as bad on Wednesday evening, although still was not great. John Means was the starting pitcher. He was so good in that season opening victory at the Red Sox last Friday afternoon, but means on Wednesday evening lasts for just four and two-thirds innings. Now, he does give up just one run, so one run and four and two-thirds, like you can do a lot worse than that, and worse we have seen from Orioles starting pitchers in recent years, but means needed to throw 93 pitches over the four and two-thirds innings. Gave up seven hits, albeit all of them singles, uh, and two walks, had four strikeouts, but he threw just 58 of his 93 pitches for strikes. So John Means, I mean, he's capable of a lot better than that. Uh, didn't really do all that well on Wednesday evening. What did go really well was the Orioles relief pitching. Five Orioles relievers combining to allow two runs, one earned in six and a third innings. And the two guys really stood out. Tanner Scott was great. One and a third scoreless innings with three strikeouts. And Cesar Valdez gave up one run unearned in two and a third innings with three strikeouts. So an Orioles bullpen that was very mixed in this series. Remember, you had what happened on Monday evening. Sean Armstrong giving up a two-out grand slam to John Carlos Stanton to cap a five-run Yankees fifth. Then you got what we got on Tuesday evening. Wade LeBlanc giving up a two-out three-run homer to Aaron Judge in the bottom of the eighth. But also in that game on Tuesday evening was a really good outing from Adam Pletko, uh, three scoreless innings. And the bullpen coming through on Wednesday evening in this 11-inning victory. Uh, that win happening as well in spite of another putrid performance by the Orioles offense. It's in, I, I'm still not sure how the Orioles actually scored four runs on Wednesday evening. Orioles won despite having just four hits and two walks over the 11 innings in the game and despite striking out 17 times. Four hits, two walks, 17 strikeouts, and yet the Orioles won 4-3 in 11 innings at the Yankees. The O scored a run in the top of the 10th on a throwing error by Yankee shortstop Glaber Torres. Scored a run in the top of the 11th on a Chance Cisco one-out pinch single. Did get solo homers in the top of the 4th from Cedric Mullins and Anthony Santander. But still, that was like, you talk about pulling a rabbit out of the hat. Uh, man, the Orioles scoring four runs on four hits in two walks over 11 innings at the Yankees. Pretty remarkable. And I mentioned 17 more strikeouts. So the O's Monday evening struck out 13 times. Tuesday evening struck out 14 times. Wednesday evening struck out 17 times. The Orioles now have struck out at least 13 times in each of the team's last four games. That's a new franchise record. It's just the sixth time in Major League history that a team has struck out at least 13 times in each of four consecutive games. Such is life when you are in the midst of a tanking rebuild, but the O's do find themselves now three and two. So one game above 500, five games into the season. Next up for the O's is the home opener, game one of a three-game series against the Boston Red Sox Thursday afternoon, 3.05 first pitch. Matt Harvey versus the former Oriole, Eduardo Rodriguez. Well, that will do it for you and me for now. We say goodbye, but we don't say goodbye for long on this podcast. Remember, every weekday morning, 
out by 5 a.m. Spread the word, subscribe, rate, review. It means so much. It helps out so much. You tell me what you want, what you think, what you need, what you crave. Uh, hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me to the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Big show in store for you on Friday. Lots to do regarding the upcoming NFL draft. Understand, my friends, we are now three weeks away from the first round of the 2021 NFL draft. It's coming quickly. There's still a lot we got to get into and we'll continue our path come Friday on the podcast. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. <laughs>